Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. This episode, we sit down with a master songwriter and one of contemporary folk music's most respected and influential troubadours. But first, our customary heads up on what's coming up and other cool stuff. If you're listening to this on or around its original release date, you still have some time to get your tickets to catch one of our absolute favorites on tour, the great John Prine. He has three dates left in his 2019 U.S. tour before he heads off to Europe in 2020. We're hoping we're going to get to talk with him when he comes through our town, Kelsey Walden, to play the esteemed Ruth Eckerd Hall. John is a legendary songwriter, and Kelsey's recent 2019 release has spent a lot of time at the top of the iTunes charts. That is a show you don't want to miss. And Song Divers is brought to you by Benson Amps. Ed and I got to visit the Benson HQ when we went to the Pacific Northwest earlier this year. We've both been struggling to find anything that sounded as good as the amps those guys build out there. Founder Chris Benson and team build all their heirloom quality amps all by hand and have perfected circuits that produce unmatched clarity and harmonics. Not to mention the unique and super cool designs the team used to set those bad boys apart even further. Guitar players, head over to BensonAmps.com to start your addiction or for the less musically inclined to pick out an extremely thoughtful gift for the sixth stringer in your life. Speaking of six stringers. Hi, this is Ellis Paul. of talent, determination, and hard work into a pot. Add a few tablespoons of timely mentorship, healthy competition, and the kindness of strangers. And don't forget a dash of good old-fashioned luck. And that's your recipe for contemporary folk music legend Ellis Paul. Over a 30-year arc, Ellis has logged more than 5,000 shows and earned scores of accolades and awards. Let's save time and just say all the prestigious folk music awards. He's released 20 albums, landed songs in major motion pictures, and been a featured performer at countless major folk and songwriters festivals. He's even picked up an honorary PhD and been the subject of a documentary. Yet he remains humble, open, and as inspired as ever to create new music, turning out some of his finest, most vital work ever on his latest 2019 release, The Storyteller's Suitcase. We were thrilled at how generous Ellis was with his time 
in sharing hard-won insights into every aspect of what it takes to carve out a living and a life as a musician. We want to share it all with you, so we're making this a two-parter. Enjoy episode one now, and watch for episode two of our visit with Ellis Paul. Ellis, thanks for being here. Tell us about where you're from. I am from northern Maine. Uh, I grew up in a town called Presque Isle, Maine. My parents moved around a little bit, um, moved to the Midwest, and we were in the Dakotas and Minnesota and, well, while I was in elementary school, but, um, but Maine for the most part. And uh, yeah, I grew up there and graduated high school and went to Boston for college and started playing guitar, writing songs when I was in Boston. So growing up, what kind of kid were you? Were you like into sports? Were you a good kid, bad kid? Uh, good guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, all, it's all part of the, the songwriter's journey. We I, need to know these things. Right. Uh, it was a pretty, um, you know, non-confrontational childhood, really, for the most part. Uh, I was an athlete. Uh, I went to school on a track scholarship uh, to Boston College and was state champion in cross country when I was a kid. So Congratulations. I got some, yeah. <laughs> that means a lot 50 years later yeah uh, you still a runner though god you still do that <laughs> you know i try but you know every time i go out i i hurt something your knees hurt or your, yeah and yeah. my mind thinks you know just go to the track and start you know really tearing it up and and of course tearing it up for me is like a seven minute mile now so it's uh and you're literally, literally tearing things up yeah wrong, exactly like it's my body uh so yeah you know i jog uh, I try and, and, and maintain a level of fitness and especially while I'm on the road like it, it's one of the strange habits of my road life is that as I'm driving down the highway I'm looking for high school tracks to stop at to do workouts so I can break up the five and six hour drives with with something with my body so that I'm not sitting all day and yeah and uh so you know I find high schools that have tracks that no one's using and and uh it's one of those crazy little tour that's kind of cool. Yeah. A little life hack for musicians. A little yeah. life hack if you're a, a runner. And and it's amazing because some of these tracks are like, you know, dirt roads around an old football field. And then other ones are like Olympic stadiums with 20,000 <laughs> seats and you have to jump a fence in order to get in. And uh, <laughs> Hypothetically, of course. It's pretty It's pretty cool, you know. You don't um, break any laws doing this. You just... Uh, like, I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I, occasionally they say, you know, you can't use this. but um, But, you know, it's generally public... You're like, look, I'm not schools. running that fast. <laughs> right. How much use is this? Really? And I'm not going to damage. It's not like I'm creating tags out on the stadium, you know, with right. the, with graffiti or something. So, I, yeah, I just go in, sneak in, run, do a couple miles, and then get back in the car and drive on. And and how about your family, parents? Uh, do you have siblings? I have five uh, five kids in my family, and my my parents. Uh, you know, they, I guess they were kind of musical. There was a lot of singing, Christmas carols. We gathered around the piano, that kind of family, and uh, weren't afraid to break into a song in the cars we were driving around together. And uh, so there was, you know, that kind of stuff. There was uh, support early on for my music career. There, In my 20s, they kind of started to freak out a little bit because they were afraid that I was going to be living off the you know, the tit of the family. While you were playing in coffee houses. Right, yeah. Hey, Dad, I need another $100. I did have that conversation with my dad. Uh, In fact, I inspired one of the songs on the new record. Uh, When I was 27, he stopped me and said, you know, you can't keep doing this. And I said, well, I can't keep doing what? And he said, music. You can't keep doing music. And 
you have to start thinking of grad school and uh you know, it was the, a typical conversation. I'd have it with my kids probably as well. If I was, they were in their late 20s and they were still kind of trying to make their way, I would say, mm-hmm. what's, what's your plan? Mm-hmm. You, you know, and this mm-hmm. is a pretty dangerous plan and you should recognize that. But they came around. I started making more money than they ever made. And, and, and that's really what it took for them to be cool about it is, uh, you know, some success. Well, and also probably a level of feeling safety for you. You know, yeah, sure. Right. And yeah. And then they were, they were cool. <laughs> what, what was the focus at, in school? What were you pursuing uh, other than music? Oh, it was English uh, writing, mm-hmm. creative writing, that yeah. kind of thing. And um, did a lot of reading and writing and, you know, which I think helped on the lyrical side, maybe hurt on the lyrical side. I think I had to unlearn a lot of the collegiate style writing stuff that I was doing in my early years and get more conversational and kind of strip strip away from the mm-hmm. that person and, and get back to the person more of who I am and less about my education and more about my heart and my you know my mm-hmm. conversational person that I am that's an interesting thing you bring up we, we've covered on here with a few different musicians but people that are especially classically trained um, almost having to unlearn because they're almost burdened by the rules of you know uh, whether it's writing or, or musical um, writing, you know, just the rules of composition, right? Yeah. And, and doing things the quote unquote right way. Right. I mean, there's, there's obviously stuff that you, I mean, even today I was pulling up and, and, uh, my, my phone had clicked onto my car stereo system and Hamilton was playing. And, oh my uh, gosh. You know, you can't really escape the education of, uh, <clears throat> the writers of the songs in that, in that musical. I mean, they're obviously so well-informed and Mm -hmm. yet they're doing really kind of gritty rap and and Mm -hmm. you know at the same time but you can't help but at least i can't help but think there's really two nerdy history fans (laughs) who went to ivy league schools here you know like underneath the whole thing right i just really sense what's the guy's name lin-manuel miranda right yeah i just sense I just sense his his history geekiness during the whole thing, which mm-hmm. uh, which I love. Don't get me wrong; I think, yeah. I think it's one of the coolest things about it. Yeah, pushing aside an old Warren G album to get to his history book, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, all, it's all in there. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, in uh, terms of musical influence growing up, you mentioned gathering around the piano and Christmas carols. But was there music in the household? In terms, did your parents listen to stuff? When when did music really come in, and when were you starting to? like notice it and when was it starting to make an impact on you or, or well, did it maybe I'm over assuming here oh no no I you know I, I played trumpet in high school all the way through high school so that was my my entrance so I had you know uh, all these Stan Kenton Chuck Mangione Maynard Ferguson records mm-hmm. all these really big trumpet playing kind of kind of records big band stuff and uh, my first I think my first real songwriter record was like um Billy Joel stuff mm-hmm. and um, and that's my first personal records I also you know had an older brother who was six years older than I was so he was listening to Fogelberg and Elton John and you know all of the early 70s singer-songwriter types and the Beatles um, so I got heavy doses of that when I was in elementary school and then when he went off to college I was you know left to my own devices and it took me a long time to find my own way mm-hmm. and uh but those early Billy Joel Joel records, I mean, I think as a mentor uh, to somebody young who is interested in, in, interested in music, those mm-hmm. 
those songs are actually quite great. They're very rich. Um, yeah, and he does everything so well, and he's obviously a big band, uh, big fan of the Beatles, and um, mm-hmm. you know respects. Uh, I don't know the the calling in a in a cool way. The sad thing about that guy is that he he's not writing songs anymore. Well, but he's still true. selling. My parents were just at Madison Square Garden on Friday for their anniversary. They saw you know he sells out Madison Square Garden yeah. every month. Right. So, and if you can do that, why? I guess. <laughs> well, why write anything new? You know, that's a good question. But I, I think, it won't get into this. Certainly, is like because you want to, because it's part of who you are. It's like the yeah. the athlete that it's like, okay, I've made my money, I can retire from sports now. But like, they genuinely love playing football, so they stay because they. What else would they be doing? This is what they do. Yeah. You know. So I think it's the difference between a guy who can write songs and made some money doing it versus I am a songwriter. This is, I have to do this. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is a shame because it would be great to hear what else he has to say with this much more life now since he wrote those original songs. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I feel like he he wrote my twenties in a way. You know, he he was the soundtrack to my twenties in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, I'd love for him to be the soundtrack of my fifties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at what Bruce yeah. Springsteen just did. Western uh, Western stars, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just it's constantly, just amazing. He's still he's still he growing. And, and, he and Neil Young are just there right. on some constantly evolving jag you know like right well i'm going to do it this way this time i'm going to try this i'm going to dip my foot into this pool and and um and you know occasionally stuff comes up that's just as good as anything they've ever done in their exactly. their careers because mm-hmm. they're still invested in and uh, that's how i want to be you know i want to keep on getting better and learning and well that's how evolving. you are based on the evidence of your latest album well, which just came out God. Thank you. This year. Yeah. Which is your, what, 19th record, I believe? It's my 20th. 20th. 20th, yeah. That's a landmark. Over almost <laughs> almost 30 years of releasing stuff, right? Your first record came out in 93? Uh, 92, yeah. And then, you know, a couple, a few cassette albums before then. Uh, so I've been recording since like 88, 89, so yeah. 30, 30 years of records. So where did guitar come into the picture? You said you were playing trumpet. That was your first sort of intro into instrumentation yeah. and learning. Did you take lessons for guitar? Or like, how did that how did that pick up? Was it that mm-hmm. girls are going to like guitar more than trumpet, or, <laughs> or trumpet's hard to play and that's, sing at the same time? That's uh, yeah, all that is true. Uh, <laughs> no offense, trumpet players. Yeah, You're sexy too, I'm sure. Well, there are few of our Chet Baker was one of the most oh, yeah. beautiful dudes, but he could sing. He could mm-hmm. sing like an angel. Oh my gosh, he played yeah. trumpet beautifully too. But I I was in college and I got a knee injury. And um, so I had to take a year off, have surgery. And in that interim time, I, I, I missed doing stuff that was creative because it was all just either track and studying, track and studying. And so I, I uh, got back and my girlfriend's sister lent me her guitar and I just started playing. And um, I'm sure there was some benefits socially to it, you know, like, you know, being able to pull it out at a party and, and meet, meeting people and girls especially. But um, but there was just something about the sound and being alone and the isolation of it and how an acoustic guitar has all these nuances. And, you know, we had this big empty room in the apartment I was living in and I'd sit in there for hours, like literally hours, like two or three hours playing the same three chords. I'm leaving on a jet plane. <laughs> uh, you know, singing through my woes and, and all the issues that I probably had at that time. Uh, with uh, relationships and and um, and then I figured out I could start writing songs. So I, pr- I probably learned ten songs 
um, and learn four or five chords. And then I was off to the races and I stopped learning other people's material and just started writing. Mm -hmm. And then I've learned how to play guitar through writing. I've never had lessons, um, just evolving the style, using open tunings, things like that over time. And eventually came into my own voice and my own sound. And And you're in Boston at this time, Mm -hmm. college age. And that's at that point in time, what, what years are we talking about? Uh, Oh, that had been 80, 83 to 87. And, and that. So there's a pretty rich live music kind of a folk scene going on right at that time in that place, right? Yeah, I hadn't discovered it, though, until after I graduated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't get out off campus that often. There was so much available to me there uh, that was on campus that I didn't venture into the city too much. But after school, I was working in Boston and wanted to do open mics and see if I could make a little headway and... and uh, and then it was like, wow, there's so much on the underground here. Like, not only were there open mics all over town, but all these suburban uh, towns outside of Boston had Unitarian churches with full-on coffee houses where 250 people would show up once a month. And mm-hmm. um, and then I discovered Club Passim. I was going to ask. So I'm a huge mm-hmm. Jeffrey Folkholt fan. Oh, all right. He's always going through Club Passim. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask if that even back then was, is that one of the important places in that community? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were two two or three venues around uh, New England, mostly around the Boston area. One was the old Vienna, which is now gone and then Passim and uh, the Nameless Coffee House and they had open mics and you could kind of work your way through but the first gig I played was 1989 I just did my 30th anniversary show at Club Passim about a week ago Very so cool. I, I'm just coming off that and uh, you know back then the guy running the place a guy named Bob Donlin was a fairly lazy booking guy he would he, he'd just book one act for the whole weekend six shows you know, there'd be an, uh, like an eight and a ten o'clock show, eight and a ten o'clock show, and then there'd be a matinee and, a, and, a, and an eight o'clock show. So you grew up working in a movie theater? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And uh, I just don't think he wanted the trouble of having to work hard on those other days. But as an opener, you'd come in and uh, you'd come in on a Friday and you get to see somebody do six shows in a row. And uh, and then you'd be able to play as an opener for them. And by the time it was Monday, you were you've elevated yourself one step on the ladder because you learned you got a master's class in performance and then you were forced to do six shows in a row yourself and, testing uh, what you're learning each night yeah right and um you know after doing that for a year or two i i was starting to come into something special and um and i'm still grateful to that place and uh it's it's probably one of the longest running folk clubs in the country it started in the late 50s in fact i think they're having their uh their 60th uh, anniversary celebration this year. Wow. I was reading about that, yes. Mm-hmm. You've had a 30 years of, of shows and you've seen a lot of venues come and go. And Club Passim has hung in there. Like, how? what does it take to... Oh, well, it, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a smooth ride even for them because um, because it wasn't. They, they nearly went down several times and Harvard University owns the building and, and uh, they've practiced a lot of grace with, with Club Passim by when they were in arrears by keeping them afloat. and um, But it's it's turned into a profitable thing now because they're serving alcohol and, and wine and, and uh, they have a, a, a great lease on the building and it's it, it's it's in a solid place. But it's hard, you know, and I, I tell people who are, you know, asking me advice about like what what's the most important thing 
at a venue that keeps it afloat. And uh, it's not the physical space, it's the personality of the person that's in charge. And whoever that is, whoever that person is, is, is got to be committed. Like it's got to be a calling for that person. And then they have to be pretty dynamic because they have to control a staff and then impress this right. this stream of listeners that come into the venue and mm-hmm. and uh you know they got to be the reason why people are coming in there if the act isn't pulling people in that one one person that's in charge has to have the dynamic personality to do it on their own and have to be willing to sell alcohol also that helps too yeah, yeah the alcohol helps I mean too. but truly the the economics of it are really important obviously you know you mm-hmm. mentioned going through times and if you think just through the the arts through history You've got to have a few supporters that are willing to support some of that stuff sometimes. Um, and But that is a really important part. There's so many great places that have fall by the wayside because they just can't keep their doors open. Yeah. You know? And somebody that can be objective, you know, like clubs tend to get dusty, you know. Right. <laughs> the, paints, the paint fades. It's easy to lose sight. Of, it's yeah. totally because you're <laughs> so wrapped up in all the other stuff that goes along with, with making a club fly. And, and then suddenly it's you're a decade into it and you somebody comes in and like this place really has some visual issues and it may be some health problems that might be uh, important to check out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all of that is important for a club. So you're developing yourself as a songwriter and mm. doing it in public is helping and, and having access to other people who are already up a rung or two or 10 from you. Well, I think and, an important uh, piece here is feedback loop too. Right. Before you get out, um, one of the things we've talked about a lot on the show is having a group of people where you're at like how did you know and was it just I'm listening to these I have a good enough taste of music these are show ready like I want to go out and bring these to an open mic night or was that your first foray into feedback loop and starting to see what the response was yeah that was it was sort of an evolution it happened hand in hand uh, you know the songs were were just cracking open and, and uh, I'd test them and, and uh, you know eventually there, uh, you know you get to see national performers and if you it's pretty easy for all of us to fall into a, a bubble as writers where we think we're we're better than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see somebody that's like not just good, but amazing as a writer or a performer or a mm-hmm. singer. And you're like, wow, I, I got to hit I, I got to hit the shed and, and, and keep on working on this stuff because it's not ready to go. It's not ready for prime time. These guys are making a living doing it. And, you know. Fortunately, Boston at that time had, you know, all of the New York writers were coming through the uh, Sean Colvin and, uh, you know, John Gorka. And, and, uh, you know, we had Tracy Chapman around that time and uh, Suzanne Vega. And uh, and then this there was a singer songwriter boom in the 90s that happened. And and I was part of that. And, um, you know, Bill Morrissey, Greg Brown. Um, Gorka, Cliff Eberhardt, all, all these people were getting picked up by fairly uh, renowned labels and and uh, and making a living. And they were my mentors. Bill Morrissey, especially, he took me under his wing, and he was probably in that era the best American folk singer. And um, to have him produce my records and hang out with him for hundreds of hours, you know, just listening to him to go on and on about music and writing and his stories. Uh, was invaluable to me in making me who I am. How did you guys cross paths? Did you open one night and then it kind of stuck and you guys uh, like his girlfriend brought, brought him out. She loved what I did. And, and, uh, he reluctantly came along just to appease <laughs> his love life. And then he was like, Oh, you know, Holy shit. I think I like this guy. And then, uh, he asked 
after one show, I'll never forget it. He just came up to me and he said, what, what are you doing? Are you recording anything? And I, I'd like to produce you. And, uh, and I was like, wow, okay. That says something about how good you must have been that night. Because for a guy to come out and meet you, and it having been because his girlfriend's like, there's not, this guy I really want you to see not me. Not really want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I did something right. I have no idea what it was. Yeah. But whatever it was, Bill saw something good in me. And, uh, and I'm forever grateful to that. And part of my mission is to mentor uh, people who are emerging songwriters, no matter what their age and take people on the road with me. And, you know, I adopt songwriters for a year or two and they ride with me and they come to all my shows. They are the opening act. And if they're not getting paid that night, I pay them. And, and, uh, you know, and that way I've been able to kickstart lots of careers over time. And, uh, and now I'm running, you know, songwriting retreats and mentoring people online and doing all that stuff as well. So it's, and a lot of that is because I'm giving back to Bill because there was a point in time where I was trying to pay him for producing the record and he said, you know, just pay it forward. I'm, I'm repaying a debt that I owe to Dave Van Ronk <laughs> and uh, I need you to pay pay it forward by, by doing the same for other people. That's so cool. Yeah, it's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty cool story. So do you, do you remember your first song that you ever wrote? The first song I ever wrote was called Farm Boy. Small town farm boy gone off to war. And uh, that's about all I remember from it. But it did win an, uh, $100 at an open mic in Colorado. Nice. And, Your first award. And a free chicken dinner, I believe. Oh, Same yeah. place. So. Yeah. The award-winning Ellis Paul. <laughs> right off that, the bat. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> that was like 1986. It was a sign was, from above. This I song read, kept me fed for an evening. Yeah. I think it was a boneless chicken too. Like, oh, it's the real <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's premium. Wow. Yeah. So, what was what was the subject matter that you were writing about back then? Was it you know a lot of people are sitting to your point in the dorm woodshedding and it's they're just talking about the angst of being alive and in their twenties and mentally insane and yeah. walking through life or but that sounds a little bit more deep. <laughs> no, it was it was fictional and. Um, you know, I, I, I think maybe because I was, um, you know, from a farm community. I mean, I'll, I'm in every song that I write, whether it's about me or not, you know, so you can't you can't deny that. But um, no, it was it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to make all our listeners feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, it was good enough for a chicken dinner and a hundred bucks, which maybe. I mean, maybe that makes me semi-professional with be my first song. That might be a grade above shit. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's some good shit. Well, you know, it was relative because there was like a clap off. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Did aud- you have the audience seated with your friends? No, or not like- really. No, <laughs> okay. I think I fairly won the clap off without without filling the crowd with friends. So it was authentic. So you yeah, know. it was a, a yeah. you know <laughs> like uncontested clap off, <laughs> right? But it might have no, it wasn't that easy. There was there were <laughs> other songs were involved, but. Um, but maybe they were even more shit than mine was. I think maybe that was, it was all relative. You had better I, shit. I just had the better that shit night. that yeah. night. Yeah. I'm familiar with the clap rating system. That's, that's generally how it works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's... Well, congratulations again. Hey. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Can we, I'm glad you shared that cause we didn't see that on your website. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not the first thing. Ellis uh, Paul, the shit years. <laughs> But I do kind of want to, if you don't mind, can we fast forward? Sure. Because yeah, this go ahead. subject matter reminds me of a song on your latest album, The Storyteller Suitcase. Okay. A Scarecrow in a Corn Maze. Yeah. Which is also about a small time 
war veteran. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like maybe you, to me at least, you perfected the subject matter. Maybe it took thirty years. Um, <laughs> well, you but know, that's I love this song, and I you. I want to know a little bit about um, what initiated it and how you came to write it. Well, you know, I kept on reading about these uh, soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq with like post traumatic stress, and uh, you know, they 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 try and settle back into life in the states and. And they have issues, and a lot of them are, you know, end up not working, and then there's additional issues from that. A lot of them come back wounded, and there's issues from that. Mm -hmm. And their relationships break down, and a lot of them, you know, in order to get by, you know, get involved with drugs, and Mm -hmm. and they're just trying to, you know, they're on pain meds and whatever. And uh, and I read some story about um, somebody robbing, like a a soldier coming back and getting involved in a robbery to to sort of take care of an opioid uh, problem that he had. And, and uh, it wasn't in Oklahoma, but um, I was driving around in Oklahoma and I started writing it out and uh, trying to think of the story about a, a small town person that everybody knows, including the cops. You know, mm-hmm. like this is somebody that grew up in a town has come back after the war. and and uh, But he goes in and he, he robs a grocery store, but he only... He only asks for a hundred bucks. He just wants a hundred bucks. That's he doesn't want to rob the whole story and walk mm-hmm. out with ten thousand dollars. He just needs a hundred bucks, which to me reminded me of the uh, ode to Billy Joe when he throws something off the Tallahassee right. Bridge, but you never quite know You're not what. Sure why? Yeah. Right. There's that little mystery, and that, that song just totally mesmerizes me. That song, especially, is just so perfectly written in in every way, and. Uh, so, you know, I wanted that kind of mystery, like why a hundred bucks? Right. And he's got a ski mask on and little details like that in that song. He's got a ski mask on, but he's, it's in the middle of July and it's Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, yeah. it's one of the telling details is this, well, why would somebody wear a ski mask? It's so hot in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, uh, and because he's wearing a ski mask, uh, everyone recognizes him because he's got this limp because he's got this war injury when he walks around so mm-hmm. everyone knows who it is despite the ski mask you know <laughs> but when the cops come in he's not walking uh, you know and there's it's a shootout a guy and, in a ski mask right and he can't run and he so he's he's kind of standing still and mm-hmm. and uh so he gets shot in the process and um so all of those details i just got lucky with all a lot of those details just flying out of me and then using the metaphor of a scarecrow in a corn maze and how somebody gets stuck and there's a way out but you're stuck you're you're really really stuck and to me that it's like a sense of loss being lost and uh, and being stuck at the same time that metaphor worked really well yes it does yeah and I like how you, you the line the other line in the course is like take shelter in a bar and just let the twister spin out. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, I think yeah, you really hit all the all the points there in that story. Thank you. Yeah. You got lucky, but it's also craft, you know, from paring down each syllable like it's really well-crafted song. And yeah. We're going we're gonna to play a little bit of Well, it. thank you. Yeah, I wrote that in a car. I wrote mm-hmm. all the lyrics in a car and uh just a lot of it was um uh, it's in the style of a guy named Sam Baker, who's one of my favorite songwriters down in Texas. And I was I was trying to write sort of in the same vein that he does. It's like a grocery list of, of images. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Pawnee, Oklahoma, Christian's Grocery Store. Um, I can't remember the rest unless I have a piano in front of me. 
There's uh, a rodeo poster from 10 years before. Right. Yeah. It's just like it just it describes the um, boots and produce, yes. produce, um, something in line. I can't remember all the lines. There's only one customer in line. Right. There's one 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 person in line. Yeah. Uh, do you have the lyrics right there? What's yes. the, what's the first verse? I'll I'll read it. Yeah. Unless you want to read no, it. No, go ahead. Cause Pawnee, know. Oklahoma, Christian's Grocery Store. There's a rodeo poster from 10 years before. There's boots and produce, one person in line, two liars out front watching traffic killing time. Yeah, it's just boom, image, so, image, yeah, image, so image, good. image, image. And uh, I didn't want to write in, in, in sort of a straight sentence. You know, I just wanted image, 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 image to create that. You painted it with just a few brush strokes, each line. That's right. Yeah. Good job. And, you know. (laughs) Pawnee, Oklahoma, Christian's grocery store. There's a rodeo poster from ten years before. Boots and produce, one person in line. Two liars out front watching traffic kill in time. I looked up from the paper, the cashier cried. Colby James was in a ski mask in the middle of July. Scarecrow in a corn maze, trying to find some way out. Storm clouds are coming, take shelter in the bar. Let the twister just spin out I knew Kobe's walk from a decade back He put a camouflage boot on a mine in Iraq Hobbled back home through the pews, through the bars I knew the man's walk like any face I ever saw That morning he'd been drinking, he slurred above the gun I only need a hundred dollars, Molly Scarecrow in a corn maze Trying to find some way out Storm clouds are coming Take shelter in the bar Let the twister just spin out Sidewalk playing checkers with a clock. Saw Kobe coming, even they knew his walk. They're used to telling stories about their wives, about the game. This one was a legend of a man named Colby James Sheriff shot from the cruiser till nothing left the gun. Cause he only saw a ski mask and Colby couldn't run. Scarecrow. In a corn maze Trying to find some way out Storm clouds are coming Take shelter in the bar Let the twister just spin out Pawnee, Oklahoma Fracking gas, drilling oil Plowing up the fields Shaking all the topsoil Raising up towers Harvesting the wind 
All the jobs that blow away, punny we'll never see again. We are caretakers of oil, of crops, of the wind. But Colby James was just a soldier in a war no one could win. Scarecrow in a corn maze, trying to find some way out. Storm clouds are coming, take shelter in the barn. Just spin out. You gotta let the twister just spin Listen, a lot of my songs reference um, other songs, especially if they're somehow related or inspired by them. That's the whole thing with the hundred dollars, for example, with the Ode to Billy. Is that the name of it? Ode yes, to Ode to Billy Joe. And yeah. then there's the rodeo poster from John Prine's Angel from Manhattan. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I just, you know, those little things. That I only care. Almost, if I didn't point them out, no one would notice. But they're there. And they're there because I'm a fan of these other songs that are informing the choices I make. And in, as a, an homage to them, I'll throw these little images in that are reference points. And I don't know why I do it, but it's <laughs> it's the same geeky thing that makes somebody write, you know, Hamilton. Well, but it's yeah. but it's interesting, <laughs> those Easter eggs that exist throughout music for somebody that recognizes them. You know, even just in a great band name where they're like, that band name's based off of a Dylan song. Right. You know, and just yeah. so true lovers of music who... The music's not just speaking to them, but they feel nostalgia and they feel community um, as a listener. And as, if you're a player and you're part of that, I think those things are really important about binding um, and doing those callbacks and also keeping those songs relevant and making them even more relevant to inform the listener even more if they go back and hear that. And then it, the song can take on a new meaning. Yeah, I think it's I think it's cool. It's an unconscious thing. I don't know that anyone would ever pick up on those things. But um, if they did, I would be amazed. But, uh, you know. It's kind of funny. The minute you mentioned John Prine, I was like, oh, yeah, rodeo poster. Like, I was already scanning, like, which song? But I I don't think I would have picked it up if you hadn't started talking. About, yeah. You know. But, you know, it's Oklahoma, but, uh, so a rodeo poster makes sense. It and, certainly fits. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm really proud of that song. I, I You know, the, even the production and how how the drums don't come in on the first chorus. I hold them back until the second chorus and and where the the fill is at the top of that second chorus and how the song builds over time and it came out pretty great I'm, I think so too I mean you know, it's a I would team. say the same thing yeah thank you and I like I mean I think the whole album every song is worthy you know I love um, Kiss Me Cause I'm Gone just as much and yeah. it, it, I mean it's not just as much I like Scarecrow better but <laughs> <laughs> right but kiss me when I'm gone is kind of deceptive. It's it's got a it's a pop song, pretty much yeah. Thing, but it has Ellis Paul DNA in it, and I think mm-hmm. it comes like you said. Every song you write, even if it's a a pop ditty, you know it's coming from your perspective, and part of that perspective is being a, a road warrior. Yeah, um, right. Leaving home, all those all that history is and got to be your history has to be informing every every choice you make. You have mm-hmm. to be able to see the scenes. Even if, like, uh, you know, I've never served in Iraq. I've never done any yep. 
military service. I don't understand, uh, you know, what they went through and, and, mm-hmm. and how they live, but I know small towns, you know, right. I know the dynamics of somebody who's having trouble in a small town and how everybody lives in glass houses. And, and, uh, so I can come at it from that angle. It feels real to me and personal and gives me some access to my own biography and, and then authenticity seeps into the song if you do it. Like and I, that. that is true. And but I also think the thing that drives a writer partly is being an empathic person. Like you are able to take in and soak up other people's experiences and feelings. Like, do you agree with that? I, yeah, no, totally. Like, yeah, I feel like I'm. I am an an empath. You're kind of a transmitter. It's my for superhero other... power. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be a counselor if I wasn't. Uh, a songwriter, but I've got too much shit I have to work through on my own. <laughs> so songwriting it is. Well, that seems to go in line with the uh, the mentorship you're talking about. The- oh, right, right. Yeah, that's the True Fire stuff. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in, at True Fire, I have a songwriting lifestyle channel. Mm-hmm. It's called The Song Factory. And um, we should real quick just mention what True Fire is for listeners. So if you are not a musician uh, or you are a musician, really it's applicable to anybody. If you want to learn, um, specifically stringed instruments, uh, bass and guitar mm-hmm. mostly. Um, whether you're uh, brand new to it or you've been doing it for a really long time, Truefire is, they're actually based here in St. Petersburg, which is significant, so we know the guys over there. It's a total coincidence um, that we reached out to you. We didn't actually do that because of Truefire, but it just yeah. works out that that um, that you're part of that, which we're definitely going to have you talk about here in a second. But one of the things they do really well, and they seem to be the, the best known for, is just the depth of... Um, tools and also the way they break up their curriculum, mm-hmm. um, and it and it spans from you know jazz and blues bass all the way through specific songwriting for singer songwriters yeah. uh, and folksy you know storytellers, mm-hmm. uh, which I think you're you're kind of their their flagship writer in that <laughs> right. in that area there. Uh, yeah, they're starting a whole new wing on songwriting, and they'll be bringing in more songwriters over time. But I started this uh, channel, and there are you know there are classes that you can go and and. I put them up every week. I just did one on writing hooks. And then, you know, I'll interview friends in front of a camera. There's a little bit of a podcast there as well. It's similar format to what you guys are doing, but it's only available there. And then you can get um, private lessons with me as well um, there. And, uh, and you know, to sp- subscribe is like five bucks. And is that a Skype thing? <clears throat> nope. It's just they leave a video and then I send back. Um, okay comments on it and uh, we go back and forth you can skype with me as well live one-on-one but i do that off channel because it has to be in real time and they don't have the format for that Um, Mm -hmm. which i think is um, the best way to do it but it's also the most difficult to schedule and for me to be there and uh you know Mm doing it through true fire is a little easier because it, I can do it on the fly. If somebody puts it up and I have like 24 to 48 hours to respond to. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's great. Cause I can do it on the road and yeah. Uh, listen in the From car. From a motel room or right. Car, yeah. 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 And Skyping is better done when I'm home and centered. So Skyping is the most uh, expensive way to do it. But, uh, through, through, uh, the true fire site, it's quite affordable. Well, and I think it's really interesting too, is we, cause there's two, two topics that are really important because of the, uh, depth of experience that you have in these things it's the impact of being a road warrior and being out on the road so much and I think it's important that we talk a little bit about that evolution from hey I'm starting to get some good feedback from being here in Boston playing open mic nights and now I'm transitioning to 
I have an artistic voice. I want to do this for a living. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that process because a lot of our, I'd say a good cross-section of our listeners, are that's where they're at. They're playing, they're getting great feedback in their, their region, maybe maybe just their local town, and they're like, what happens next? What do I do? How do I know if I should do this? And then what do I do to start being successful? Noting also that in 30 plus years, the industry's changed a lot and how you go out and you become found and how do you get people to hear you? And I think it'd be interesting for us to hear, what did you do then? And now looking back, what would you tell somebody to do now? Well, you know, I was lucky because I was born. It's the sort of Malcolm Gladwell thing. I, you know, it's, are you a pioneer in a place and a time where things are thriving around the concept of whatever you're working with then? Like, you know, the Beatles had Hamburg. They they went and they played for 10,000 hours in strip clubs and mm-hmm. yeah. cellar rock clubs, and they developed all their skill set there. Well, I had the very same thing in Boston and and so did the people around me. Patty Griffin was there and Daryl Scott was there and and all of these, um, you know, Darrell Williams, Martin Sexton, all of these, these people that went on to have careers 30 years later. And, um, and we were all competing against each other at these open mics. It would be, Patty would be up there, then Marty would go up and then it'd be my turn. And then Darrell Williams would go up and Daryl Scott. And you're like, holy shit. It's interesting you use the word competition. Yeah, well, it it just is. It, you know, no matter what you, there's a crowd trying to absorb all of you, and uh, you know, you're hitting people in a different way. Sure, um, people have different levels of flash. Obviously, Marty is Martin Sexton is a, like a vocal acrobat. He can do all sorts of things that no human can do. That's and, crazy. And uh, you know, you have to follow that. And obviously, I'm not going to do that. So I have to do with words what he did with his voice. And uh, and then you get Daryl Scott going up there playing a monster guitar, and uh, so yeah, you're and you're trying to get the opening slot for the next national act that comes through that very club, and so you're competing for that little right. piece of sunshine. So whether you like it or not, um, you are competing, but you're also supporting each other, sharing information, singing on each other's records. You know, Patty and Martin and Dar, all those guys sang on my records in the early years, and. Uh, were incredibly supportive and as I was to them and um you know it's really easy to get eaten up in the competition and I think all of us have suffered from that especially you know there's this arc that happens and you're starting to hit your mid you know early 30s and you've been doing this now for five ten years and you're like Fuck. This, is <laughs> like, this person's getting that and, and that person's getting that and where am I where am I in the hierarchy of, of the the ladder and, and will I ever get to the ladder that these people I know and grew up with, uh, you know, if you let that stuff eat you up and almost everybody does at some point in their career, uh, it'll kill you. Mm-hmm. It'll ruin your personal relationships. It'll ru- ruin your love for music and you'll, you'll, you'll quit. So you got to work through that and, and, uh, and recognize that everyone's got their own time. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the people that were signed to major labels and had hits, I'm, I'm playing the same venues are, and I'm out, out, out drawing them, you know, uh, yeah. 30 years later. So, you know, we're all on different paths and, and, uh, you know, I've learned that the best thing I can do is continually raise the bar for myself just an inch at a time and not think in miles, but think in inches and, and, uh, you know, try and get every record to be a learning experience, every song to be a learning experience and just get better by doing that. And, and you know, if you create, there's a sense, it's sort of the field of dreams thing where you, you build it and they will come. And I think there's a lot of karmic truth in that to a degree. 
<clears throat> but you have to get out. You have to get on the road. You have to uh, share your story with, with people in an audience and you have to put stuff on YouTube and uh, Spotify and, and, and cross your fingers and, and do great art. Great art will create a crowd and a crowd will create a crowd. So, uh, I don't want to lead the witness too much here, but was there (laughs) part of you though, that kind of made a conscious decision that you wanted to be more hands-on and and DIY with the direction that your career took and and choices you were making? Yeah. I mean, there was a time, uh, I was 26 and, uh, the first record came out in Boston and, and there was a couple songs on it that got a lot of recognition in, in Boston and suddenly I was I went from zero to a thousand people in in, an, in like a matter of a few months and so we we figured that maybe we should look at doing this with a record label and uh, we <laughs> there's a place called CBGB's Lounge mm-hmm. in, in New York City and uh, we uh, we set up a showcase there and it was the day after Thanksgiving never played New York before. And uh, if you know New York, the day after Thanksgiving is like the deadest day in New York City. <laughs> almost almost everybody, the whole entire town is in the Catskills. And uh, we went down and we didn't, and this is the thing, like we had no idea what we were doing. This is my, my manager, uh, Ralph Jacketine at the time and I. Um, and we had eight record labels at CBGB's. Uh, and I was 26 and there wasn't another, there wasn't another single soul in the place. All, all record company executives. All record labels. <laughs> all, all vice presidents. <laughs> MCA, Columbia, uh, you know, RCA, uh, A&M, Electra. I mean, like, and I was like shaking in my boots and, uh, <laughs> It just was, it was just a horrible experience <laughs> for everyone, including, including them, them. You, you know, like yeah. really we like stayed out of the Catskills for this. And I, I walked out of the place like completely dejected and I, you know, I kind of looked over at Ralph and I said, you know, we can do this. I know I need time, mm-hmm. but I also recognized that I just blew it with eight record labels. There wasn't going to be a second chance with those people, you know. So we put out two records independently. I produced them, you know, and put them out myself. Um, Bill Morrissey was the actual producer of the first record, and Duke Levine the second record. And then Rounder Records uh, came out to see me play in Boston, and they were right in Boston, and they were, you know, the number one Roots, American Roots label in the country, and they signed me. And then I did seven albums with them. And then the internet cracked. Mm-hmm. open the entire music industry and and I was looking at the math of it all and like you know you know I'm I'm selling like you know 20 30,000 records with with Rounder and I'm not seeing any of that money and 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 then it hit me that if I put this stuff out myself the numbers probably won't change significantly but all that money will be mine and now I have access because of the internet to do it and and of course now CDs aren't selling right. now like do I go back to a label what do I do now you know so um what's well, a really interesting time to be a musician you know especially if if you look at it everybody's going back out on the road so it's a great time for live music again but it's yeah. it's a scary time as a musician to figure out how you make that sustainable and as a listener 
uh, and as a songwriter, you know, um, it's a really interesting thing to watch that dynamic unfold now. And it's strange for me because my audience base hasn't hasn't really slipped over to to Spotify and and that stuff yet mm-hmm. in in mass. Right. Like there are a lot of younger songwriters whose audience don't know any better. They've never actually bought a CD, so they're, they're right. this is just how they consume. What's the strange coaster you have here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Right. And so you know. I'm trying to teach people how to do that and grow my audience on on Spotify and and find new people to play to and it's you know I I think what's probably going to happen in the industry is you're going to have very few national artists you're going to have more regional artists because the they can only sustain the touring thing within a few hours of their home because it's just not financially not feasible to do it unless there's some national breakthrough on radio and that's not happening um, and Spotify listeners tend to be so spread out. Mm-hmm. You might have a hundred thousand people listening on Spotify, but only, you know, three hundred are in one city, and then the rest are <laughs> right. And depending on when you tour through, fifty of them might be busy. Right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're going to be lucky to get twenty of those three hundred out, and then they're not. Are they really tapped into you in a way where they even know that you're coming right. through town? And so it's. But you know, in the old days, the record label would send it out to radio stations they'd support the radio stations through some kind of mm-hmm. you know not payola but you know something related to payola like hey we're doing this great event in mm-hmm. hawaii would mm-hmm. you like to come out it's mm-hmm. all, you know all expenses paid trip we're doing this big conference event and uh you know stuff like that and so um anyway you know now i'm i'm doing everything in house and i'm um, managing myself right now and being my own record label and i have uh you know one person helping out as a an office person and uh and things are going great i mean it's going as well as it ever has and um but uh, knowing that and knowing how my my business is changing personally i'm i'm going to be looking at micromanagers to do to take care of each part of my business like I, social media I need a social media manager and, yeah. I have I, I have a booking agent so I, okay. I don't have to do that fortunately right um, but you know my like my teaching courses all of my um, all of my social media stuff I need somebody to micromanage that for me and mm-hmm. and, and clean it up and make it good and <laughs> you know because I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. we have some young friends here and I don't maybe you can help correct me because I don't know the name of this thing but they're trying they're young that's looking at me super talented um, and hilarious they're like burning up Instagram oh okay yeah, they got like two million streams I mean, yeah whoa and they're trying something they're trying to put together a tour and it's almost like a voting system based on region yeah where they they try to get people to commit to would you turn out for a concert you know Right, and, and they're trying to actually construct great. a tour, Crowd, crowdsource. The, yeah, right. Do you know the, the name of what they're it. doing? Like, no, I don't. So, I I, I yeah. know what you're talking about. I don't know the specific name for what it is, but it but it yeah. is an interesting idea. It's the same thing. Of, uh, but there's actually a bunch of clothing brands that do this too. That are would you would you buy this? Great, fund this, and we'll we'll make this garment, and right. then you all get it. You know, right. it's the same idea wow. with with um you know with touring and stuff too. Um, it, it's really interesting. But I but they have well, this isn't unlike you. Like you have a very there's a, there's probably a ton of people that have heard some of your songs, mm-hmm. and then there's a subsection of them that are this cultish following that absolutely love your stuff, and then you yeah. have the people that probably fall in between. So I, I would say my parents probably fall in the in between, right? They know of you, they saw you play live when you toured through 
it might have been almost 10 years ago. Yeah, right. You toured through the Tampa Bay market, um, and they saw you, and, and my dad's looked for you and loved your stuff ever since. And if it, if your name comes up, a lot of that is your music has staying power, certainly. There's, there's yeah. a craft and a really specific thing that you do uh, that resonates with people. But I think also you're such a great storyteller, and that's something that resonates. And I, I think that's important as we talk about he brings up so Danny and Alex is a group we're talking about they've mm-hmm. been on um, previous shows they've got a shtick they've got a thing that they do um, I'm a huge Keb Mo fan I would throw you in the, the bucket with Keb Mo where yeah. I don't want to go see you at a 2,000 person venue I want to see right. you in somebody's living room and have you to myself with the, a few other people that are that are into it just as much as I am that are absorbing what you're doing and I think as you're talking about it, what it looks like to be a professional and performing musician, a lot of that depends on the type of music you're doing and what your experience is for your listener. Because you mentioned you're heading up to St. Augustine to go play up there. Yeah. Last time I was up there, I was seeing Nathaniel Wrightliff and the Night Sweats. Phenomenal band. I don't want to see them in somebody's living room. I want to see them at an amphitheater. I want to dance. And, right. and great songwriters, you yeah. know, great songwriters, but it's a different type of thing. They're saying something, they've got a message, but it's, you're dancing, you know, right. yeah, with yeah. you, like it's a, the experience is you're coming out, you're feeling something. There's a lot of emotion, um, and there's just a joy to the you-ness in what you're doing, too, which I think is different in a lot of songwriting. Yeah. It's funny you mention that because I feel like I can scale my numbers pretty accurately. Like I feel like I have probably around 100 fans that have seen me over 100 times. And then I have maybe, you know, maybe 20 that have seen me over 200 times. And how many of them are related to you? (laughs) (laughs) I have one woman that's seen me 360 times. Wow. Yeah. And then I have about uh, a thousand people that donate money to my fundraising campaigns. We raise over a hundred thousand dollars every time I put out a record. And those, those people are willing to financially bear their hearts to me and in a way that's really supportive and, and then out on the road every year, I play to about thirty or 40,000 people at, you know, doing about 150 shows a year. And let me ask this question. If what you've done over the years, that seems like the dream right there. When we ask, one of the questions we'll ask, and, and won't necessarily ask this of you, but, but we do ask generally is, like, what's your, what's your dream gig? What's your dream setup, you know? And I can think of Andrew Duhon, who's one of my current favorites and was on the show. He said, you know, two weeks at a time, every couple of months, you play 400 seater venues. They're packed with people that care and are listening intently. Like that's yeah. the dream, you know? Yeah, that would be great. But, but I mean, it's, you're doing that, you know, like playing, you're playing at what a third of the year, just over a third of the year out on the road and mm-hmm. to, to dense rooms of an intimate crowd. I mean, that's for people there that want to hear you and still some people that are hearing you for the first time, which is also really exciting. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's still opportunity beyond that. Cause I, I, I know that there's probably your parents are in this next group. I play these people, those 30,000, 40,000 people come out every year. They're just people I see annually. And there's about 300,000 people that know my name. Like they know Ellis Paul. They know maybe a few songs. They have an album. They see me if once, twice, maybe a handful of times, but maybe not for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then there's 3 million people that know my songs that have no idea what my name is. So those 3 million people are those people that watch major motion pictures right. and have yeah. seen me myself and Irene and, right. and I, and I don't want to gla- glaze over that cause that's an important thing. Cause that's a dream for a lot of songwriters, mm-hmm. right? Is to have your music get picked up. Um, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell earlier. What yeah. was the tipping point for you? So you, you, you get picked up, you're on rounders. Was there a tipping point where you're like, okay, I'm comfortable now. This is a career. You mentioned that 27, 28 year old, you having that talk with your dad a little earlier right. before the show, but 
what was that tipping point and then how much of that played into that like talk a little bit about that experience of that transition but then where a song like you know the world ain't slowing down sure where that comes in and how important that is for you I think the idea, and as the metaphor goes, I, I, I describe it as like a pyramid. You get these little breaks. You do a great opening set in front of Keb Mo. Okay, that's that's a, a tiny little sugar cube that you put down on the ground. You just played in front of 2,000 people, and maybe you got 100 new people as fans that bought your CD or whatever will, would commit to seeing you again in some way. So, and you get a bunch of those over a course of career, and I did. And then you, I got signed to Rounder Records. Well, suddenly it's not a sugar cube. Now it's the size of a, you know, it's Pie. yeah, it's it's bigger. <laughs> it's a little bit bigger. So you put that down, and then you know that, and all the other gigs you're doing, you're consistently touring. Every gig is a little tiny sugar cube. Some are bigger than others, and then you get Rounder, and then you get a movie. Uh, you get the world ain't slowing down in a Jim Carrey movie, and it's in the movie five times. It's the biggest block in my pyramid in of itself completely meaningless because you need to build a pyramid in order to be seen by people it's got to rise above the woods and that block doesn't do it in of itself but it's the combination of all the touring all the gigs Mm -hmm. all the lucky breaks one movie two movies a television show uh, getting in front of a folk festival and and suddenly this pyramid starts to rise above the the sight line and it rises above the trees and people can see it and then suddenly you have a career well, so a couple follow-up questions from that. First, talk a little bit about how did that happen? How did where did the song get onto the movie? Did somebody just know of you and they thought that might make sense, or were you were you actively seeking that out? Was Rounders out pitching you? How did that happen? Uh, there's you know there's the random cold call stuff that happens, but almost ninety nine percent of the time, the stuff that happens is through personal relationships. And Ralph, my manager, uh, you know drank beers with the Fairley brothers on Martha's Vineyard in the 1980s and they they stayed in touch and uh, eventually the Fairley brothers were in LA and they were starting to make make way as as producers and directors and and uh, and they found out Ralph was managing acts so you know over the years he would send the albums of all of us that he was working with and eventually that song caught Peter and Bobby's ears and they're like oh this song could easily be a hit song and it, and we're going to make sure that we do everything we can from our end to make it a hit song so they put the song in the movie four times and over the end credits and uh, it became the theme to the movie and and uh, you know and I, I wish it had happened now rather than then because we didn't have the internet then oh, right. like we do now and mm-hmm. we didn't have social media and and um, and it, by that point the record had been out for over a year with Rounder, so they didn't jump back into doing anything with it. And uh, so we never were able to take advantage of it in the way that I wish we had. But the song still got out there. Oh, yeah. Every single day, I have people leaving messages on the YouTube site for the song. Really? I mean, you got, what, one and a half million listens on Spotify, which... I hate to use that as a barometer, but but it is a real barometer. Well, you get, know. Get, that's the live version of me singing it, which is interesting because Rounder didn't put me up on Spotify until a year ago. Oh, they wow. had, they had such a backlog of their artists that I'm like, and finally I had to say, if you guys don't get me up on Spotify, you're 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 going to lose the all of my records because you're you're breaking the contract by not you know, making right. my record available to every medium and you're supposed to be. Right. And then a week later, everything's up. Yeah. You know? Um, so, you know, a, a big swath of my career was missing from Spotify until recently. And I'm, you know, which is 
too bad, you know. But again, it's like every time I've left my career in the hands of people that aren't invested like I am, it the, it just falls through the cracks. And and you got to remember that anybody that's songwriting out there and, and creating music, it's you have to have your hands in everything. You have to have your heart in everything. You have to be your heart has to be influencing all the moves that are being made and the care that other people are taking. And somehow it's got to influence their their investment and turn their heart into your heart, you know. And and that's hard to do, and especially with record labels that are just kind of putting out two hundred, you know, records a year, and you're just one of many, and you're you're grateful to be there. But it's sometimes hard to be heard in the din of noise that's being created. And now that there's, you know, it's just a guerrilla warfare out there on the internet, and we're all trying to make noise that's heard above the other noise and uh, it's it's even harder now hey guys this is Steph here and I need to get something off my chest the truth is I have guitar playing insecurities pretty big ones I mean, I can hold my own, but when I hear guys like Ed pick up a guitar, I realize quickly just how narrow my scope of knowledge truly is. My best friend, writing partner, and all-around guitar stud, Colin Ryan, confessed to me recently that he's been subscribing to Truefire to expand his musical vocabulary. I told Ed about it, and he was curious too. So we made a visit to Truefire's site and were blown away by how diverse and comprehensive Truefire's courses are. We were also really impressed by their educators too. Well-known musicians, Grammy winners, and touring performers. A few really cool ones that stood out to me were Luther Dickinson, the North Mississippi All-Stars, Dweezil Zappa, Sonny Landreth, and our guest, Ellis Paul. Any lingering reluctance to sign up was quickly extinguished when I learned that over a million guitar players from around the world are already using Truefire. I downloaded the app, and I became one of them. So if you want to join us at any skill level, head over to songdivers.com Truefire to get started on our favorite musical education platform. You use the word investment a few times, and I'm going to use it in a different way, the same meaning, but in a different context, which is, and we're seeing it a lot from stuff like this podcast, people investing in you as a, as a person, right? Because that is so much part of the songwriting and trusting your artistic voice um, and that, and then rooting for you because of it, you know? So right. be, be joining a relationship, and I think that's why that live show, and I talk about the intimacy of the type of clubs that you're playing. Um, when I saw you were at the Hideaway here in St. Pete, which is one of our favorite venues to play, and we're really lucky to have that. I think you just played the Attic last night yeah. in Ybor City. It's a, it's great, another great venue. We, mm-hmm. we haven't had as long. Um, but that experience as a as a listener and as a, a you know spectator, a fan um, in this case, that creates another relationship, you know? And so the songs take on another context and they take on another meaning and they mean more and you start rooting for this person as a songwriter, yeah. you know? And they mean right. something different to you than they did when you just heard them the first time. Right. And yeah. I think that that's a really important thing for, so, hey, thank you for doing the show with us. But I think for anybody that's out there, opportunities like this, but also like when you're at a show, talk a little bit about that relationship with the audience. Like everybody knows like, yeah, you meet and greet and, you know, but what's your approach to that? Because that's so important. You know, and, and really developing relationships, so, so people are rooting for you, and they feel a personal connection, a personal investment, whether that's monetary or time, in what you're doing. So they do come out to see you when you come through, and they feel like you're going to know that they're there. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I give time to the people that are 
coming. I make eye contact and I, you know, I shake hands and take photos and, and, uh, and a lot of the songs are personal songs. So they, um, revealing quite a lot on stage, you know, there's a lot to, about my personal life. So I think they probably feel like they know me pretty well. And I think they, they, they do, they might not know me personally. Um, but as far as having an artist to fan relationship, the, you know, the, my book is pretty wide open and, and that helps. And then there's just, you know, I get people that are, they're educated. They, you know, they tend to be, um, you know, 40 to 70 and they like books. They read a lot. I mean, I, yeah, I can, I can do the breakdown. My songs are, <laughs> are little stories and, and right. they bring in people that like stories. They like to read, they like literature. They, you know, they tend to be educated they tend to be white collar. Where did those people find you for the most part? Where are you finding that? Like, what's their first introduction, to Ellis Paul? Oh well, a lot of it is just word of mouth, and um, you know, one person telling another person. The biggest, of course, um, impact I had uh, commercially was with me, myself, and Irene, and the world ain't slowing down. So the movie is what hit people most. But I think you know the the thing that brings people out repeatedly is my live show and the fact that they could come see me and they're like, wow, I, I'd love, love to see that happen again. And the next year I come through town and there they are again. Mm-hmm. And so my challenge is to do a different show the next year and not just go up there and sort of just stroke my ego and, and ride some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, wave. I've got to have a constantly evolving show that involves new songs and old songs and new stories and new, new pattern. And, and, uh, you know, I'm recognizing that's my deal. I have to burn down the show every year and create a new one. In terms of creation, um, and we want to get into, um, if anyone's uh, going to go check out our, our Instagram after this, you'll see there's three posters uh, behind me that Ellis <laughs> has illustrated. And I think it's interesting if you think about really great athletes that retire and then they go coach, right? You right. haven't retired. You're a player coach at this point, but you're, <laughs> right. you've taken something and you said, this is something I'm doing. It's something I feel passionate about, but you've, also started to mentor on it and you talked earlier about um you know hosting um you know songwriting um retreats retreats yeah thank you and but but the, like the science of songwriting you know and songwriting as an exercise and not just an expression yeah. um and you've turned that into you've leveraged something and I, I wouldn't leverage maybe isn't the right word because it's so authentic what you're doing it's not like you're like cool i need to make money off this it also to your point you're giving back you're doing something you care about you're passionate about you enjoy it um, and you've put in those 10,000 hours and so you have an expertise and you're able to teach. So I'm interested in, I'm going to shape this question all around one key question we ask yeah. everybody, which is, are you a title first, music first or lyric first songwriter? And then I'd love to hear how that's evolved over the years. And if you can tell us a little bit about these illustrations in that context. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I, I would say that there was a time where I was the guitar first that I would come up with a guitar piece and then I would build the idea of the song around the guitar and what the guitar was doing. Um, rarely am I a title first, although that maybe sum up will sum up what I do now and how I write now. It's not so much about the title, but more about the idea of the song. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so what were the three choices? Lyric? Uh, Lyrics, music, or title. Oh, right. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. lyric, you know, I guess that's tied into that that, that kind of thing now as well. So it's a kind of a co- combination of the idea, the lyric and the title. And I'll work off, off the guitar uh, before I pick it up now. And I'll, I'll do free writing about whatever subject it is that I want to write about. 
Mm-hmm. And are you exercise? Like, do you put yourself through musical exercises too? Are you sitting down and just exercising the songwriting muscles a little bit and saying, okay, I'm gonna. For example, Edward before he got here was playing a tune. He just started working on. Where he's like, I'm only gonna use major chords. And it's a great tune. Yeah, it turned out to be a great tune. Um, but th- it was an exercise, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to write to a specific thing versus just sitting down and you know Tom Pettying it, where you just it comes out of the universe and that's how it comes out. Right, well, specifically know? because I'm kind of known for like almost avoiding just a major chord. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, yeah, he's like, an asshole. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though? I wanted to, like, okay, I'm not going to get too complex. I'm just going to stick with major chords and yeah. see, see what, what I can do with that. Yeah, that, sometimes I add, I, I, yeah. I put a little bit of a spin on things to just try and get something new out of myself. Um, you know, like writing, like as I said with uh, Scarecrow in the Corn Maze, I use Sam Baker's style of uh, grocery store list. Mm-hmm. lyric writing and I wanted to write in that to kind of get a taste of what how he writes and it's not typical of how I write mm-hmm. um, but mainly now because I'm writing on the fly and I'm, I don't get to spend a lot of time with the guitar alone uh, I come up with the idea first and then I'll sit down and I'll free write for an hour and just whatever the subject is I'll just write as much as I can so you're just scrawling like handwriting writing that way or are you sitting with the guitar and free writing no just free writing just free writing alone and which is how I wrote uh, Scarecrow in a Corn Maze I almost did the entire song off off instrument and uh, and then brought it to an instrument then tried to find music that would match the mood and, and mm-hmm. the phrasing and um, so it's almost cinema cinematographic at that point right or cinematic I should say is a better way to put it where you're almost like you have this story and now you're trying to almost soundtrack to it kind of yeah I, I, I picture it more like it's it's more like Bernie Toppin and, okay. and Elton John you know Bernie's in the room and he's writing the words and I've divided my world in, in, in two places now and that's because I travel so much mm-hmm. so I'm doing I can do that I can write those free writing exercises in the car uh, I can do it in uh, airplanes. I can do it in hotel rooms. Um, and then when I get home, uh, that's when I can pick up the guitar or the piano and, and, and put on high heels and a golden suit and a gigantic exactly. feather hat, and crazy glasses. Right. Yeah, right. I was gonna do s- a lot of cocaine. Yeah, really channel so Elton. Much yeah. I was gonna ask possible. about that too because that's uh, you wrote that on piano when it mm. came time to do the music. Did you consciously say, "I think this is a piano"? Uh, it's weird, you know, sometimes if the song's contemplative, I'll go to the piano first because it has more, because my skill set is so limited, liter- literally, that I can only do so much. So I can't mm-hmm. play over the lyrics. It's like chord, words, chord, <laughs> words. I actually <laughs> love your style, though. I like that that style of piano where it's not too complex. It's, you know, kind of a Jackson Brown, you know, yeah. John Lennon, the kind of like, you're not a pianist, but you come up with a... It's a rhythm foundation, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And creating a lot of space around the words, and when there's, a, you know, pretty heavy-duty words, that's, it's nice to just have a lot of space around the lyric. And mm-hmm. So I would say I'm, I'm an idea guy now. I used to work off the guitar, but now it's more from the idea and, and fleshing it out before I go to the instrument. Mm-hmm. So, Ed, you picked up these posters, what, mm-hmm. how many years ago? I actually just got them. Oh, you did? Yeah. I've been, I mean, I've seen them before and I thought, I need to get those posters. And then I'm like, Ellis Paul is going to be here. I'm just going to order those. I ordered those off your uh, nice. web- website. I'm glad it works. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm it's it so all. cool to me because it distilled the, you know, the nuggets of what you do and what you picked up. And I, to me, it, it also speaks to the mentorship and the community that seemed to be at the heart of what, of your journey. 
Yeah, you know, you know, this is what I I needed when I was twenty, and I'm I'm you know I'm dealing with people like how do I write songs? They're just they want to be emerging songwriters, and and they're like, all of the lessons can take years and years and years. And I was like, what if I? And Bill Morrissey never just sat down and said, you need to edit your material, and it, he could have, and I'm sure he was thinking it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see how he couldn't because he was he was so succinct with with, with language. Um, but, but he never wanted to step on me. But I wish he had. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I should say there's. Well, it's in that feedback loop, right? One yeah. of the yeah. One of the posters is specifically about going back and rewriting. Yeah, so there's an editing wheel. Well, we should say so. Just succinctly, there's a source. Mm-hmm. Is your step one? I'm assuming we have these yep. in the right order. I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah, you do. <laughs> source. Then there's the song factory, right? Yeah. So the actual the writing, the editing, what that process is, and then there's taking it to the crowd, so performance. Yeah, and this is what I. What I tell people, I get a lot of people in their like mid fifties who are, you know, finally empty nesters are retiring. They're going back to music because they finally have time and space in their life to do it. And they want their learning curve to be quicker. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my teaching classes and retreats do that. So the song idea generator, the main thing is like, it's just great places for you to pull songs out. You can see the instrument is there, uh, books, arts, movies, newspapers, your biography, your friend's biography, random ideas that might pop out of nowhere like a fortune cookie. And then you have like 72 hours to to write the first draft. And I always tell people the problem with almost every songwriter is that they allow the critical voice to come in too soon and they'll the, that'll freeze you. It'll it'll start clogging up the pipes with criticism you'll, you'll, you'll be heavy handed in how you feel about each line and then you'll never get to the second verse so keep that person out just use use filler lines just get that first draft done don't even worry about forming the idea clearly just get as much of the form of the song done from start to finish and then in the editing process you ask yourself what's the mission of the song what's it about who, who do I want to hear it how do I want it to work in the world and where will it make the most difference in someone's life? And why would that person give me three minutes of their life to hear it to begin with? And then you put every single process of the song, the melody, the verses, the chorus, the believability factor, then who's singing it, the narrator, what audience is it designed for? It's all chosen around, all those edits are chosen around the mission statement. So you're lining the mission statement up with all your editing choices. And it makes the song fly straighter and, and, um, be much more effective in the story you're telling and, and, and how quickly people can absorb it. There are these, for those of you, you'll see them in the, the song photography, or excuse me, the podcast photography, but they're these very intricate posters that are almost like, some of them almost look horoscopic in nature, where it's there's all this meaning and translation, but there's also all these things that are almost just like tips to try and unlock the source material, right? So for example, one of them is, you know, wake the soul with a favorite beverage. Uh, for example, but just like anything to just like feel some freedom and try different things as you're, as you're getting kicked off because songwriting is so different and, and, uh, the source material is so different for everybody. And also like the inspiration to start songwriting and why you're doing it also very different depending on who you are. Yeah. And I actually am a firm believer in the beverage. Like (laughs) you're sitting down to write, it's 10 o'clock at night. There's coffee on one side, there's red wine on the other side. Or whatever it is you do to sure. get a slight buzz to, to get your your heart and your mind flowing. And uh, 
and and maybe maybe get rid of a little bit of that critical side, right? Yeah, yeah, because a little liquid courage, even if it's if exactly. it's internal. Yeah, yeah. I sense a new question for us it would be: Are you a coffee first or wine first uh, writer? That seems too <laughs> narrow. It's like or Coke? Are you doing? Yeah, what? Yeah, right. Yeah. Isn't there a monster? I do yeah. Red Bull. Yeah, <laughs> Dylan was a Red Bull guy. I eat ahead of raw broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to some actual music. Yeah, like, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are we can talk. This is I love. It's nice talking. to have guys to talk shop with. You know, <laughs> as, as you guys know, it can go on forever. Yeah. Um, Play something off the new album. Uh, sure. What's your favorite thing to do? What excites you to like to do every night? You're like, oh, I want to make uh, sure I do this one. Well, this one is always a good starting point because it gets me warmed up. It's called I Ain't No Jesus. And uh, oh yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, rather than spoil the content, I'll just I'll I'm gonna just sing. I'm gonna go down Do with it. Andy just in case the harmonica throws him a little. You gonna play harmonica? Yeah, but I'll okay. back away. No, 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 let let add it. But we don't want Indy like jumping on you. All right, here we go. The only miracle I've seen 
you're enjoying our interview with the one and only ellis paul don't forget to watch for episode two for more thoughts and stories from ellis as well as a few more exclusive live performances recorded right here at our studio i found you sitting on a suitcase crying beneath my feet i feel the rumble of a subway train yeah and i laugh out loud Restless, she said, Baby, you'll never change. You gotta get gone, you gotta get going. And the world's slowing down. You've been listening to Song Divers. Thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days. Songs we heard in this episode were Rose Tattoo from Ellis' album The Day After Everything Changed and The World Ain't Slowing Down from his Translucent Soul album. You might also recognize that one from the soundtrack of the movie Me, Myself, and Irene. We also heard Scarecrow in a Corn Maze and I Ain't No Jesus from Ellis' latest album, The Storyteller's Suitcase. I know, I know. We also want more Ellis Paul. And it's coming up shortly in part two. But here's how to hold yourself over in the meantime. Keep up with everything Ellis by visiting ellispaul.com. There's a ton of great content on Ellis' site. Find out about all the ways to learn songcraft from Ellis. Find links to his music and social media pages. And see where his tour is taking him next. 
Get any of his 20 records on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere you get your music. And for the current and aspirational guitar players out there, go check out Ellis Paul's Song Factory, available through Truefire, our favorite guitar education platform. If you dig what we're doing, we'd really appreciate a nice review over on iTunes or whichever platform you're listening to us on right now. You can also help us out by following us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram. While you're on Instagram, follow at Ellis Paul Songs and make sure you let him know how much you enjoyed his episode of Song Divers. That way, maybe he'll let us record a part three or part four, maybe part five. Top of its lungs. Because it doesn't. It it has. Well, I think it's trying to feel its meow. So it meows. So it like vibrates. Yeah. But it's like the loudest meow you've ever heard. And 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 then you can't get its attention to stop because he's deaf. So (laughs) you come up behind him and he just jumps a mile. Song Divers is a production of Ybor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of St. Petersburg, Florida.